0: Have you ever wanted to express or describe something, but there was just not the right word available to you, and so you just made one up? So my roommate used to do this in college. When he was frustrated or just bewildered by people's response, he would say, b'gouche, and it just, it just never caught on. But, but this, this concept of creating new words to describe something really isn't that uncommon. I mean, Think about whenever like streaming services were created, like Netflix. People were watching show after show after show, and we had no word to describe that phenomenon, and so we created binge-watching, got added to the dictionary. And, and that's actually what's happening in our text tonight. James, the brother of Jesus, is writing about something that, that shouldn't be happening in the Christian community, and there was no real word to describe it, and so he makes one up. And so tonight we're going to be looking at James 2, uh, verses 1 through 5, and, and the problem that James identifies, what's causing this problem, and what the proposed solution is. So the problem actually takes up the bulk of our text uh, because James creates a, a scenario, potentially real, potentially imagined, that gets at the problem. So he asks his readers to imagine that they're at church and two visitors walk through the door. One is wearing a gold ring and nice clothes, and the other one is wearing some shabby, we could also translate that as filthy, clothing. Have your parents ever uh, looked at what you're wearing and critiqued it or just said, uh-uh, you're not wearing that because it, quote, sends the wrong message? This text is proof that that's actually true. True. Because these guys didn't come walking in with their tax return saying, look, I'm a rich guy, or look, I'm a poor guy. It was quite obvious based on their apparel. And, and we really can't undersell the communication that flows from our appearance. Th- th- so much so that there's almost a, um, a morality, like a, a right response that we attach to clothing. Maybe you've experienced this before. Maybe you've been downtown for a, a musical or, or a Browns game, and you're, you're walking from the, the parking garage to the stadium, and up ahead you see a homeless guy who looks like he hasn't showered for days. He's walking kind of strange. And, and, and your, your body has a response, doesn't it? You start walking a little faster. Or maybe you start walking a little closer to the edge of the sidewalk. Or maybe, maybe you just stick your hand in your pocket just to make sure that the wallet or the phone doesn't disappear. Why'd you do that? Why do we do that? It's Because of the way the guy looks. It, it, it's a triggered response based on someone's appearance. Apparently there was a, a triggered response to these two guys as well. Um, the man in fine clothing, they take him and have him sit in a good place. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean they bring him to the front uh, of the assembly. Uh, over in London, there's this building called Shakespeare's Globe. It's a reconstruction of the theater that uh, Shakespeare's plays would have been performed in. Uh, and if you go in, the, stadium, or in the, the theater, there are three types of seats. There's the floor seats, which was standing room only. It was for the commoners. And then there was like normal theater seating. And then there was one other seat. It was the box seat that was right above the stage. And it was the worst seat in the house because you couldn't see the stage. You could literally see 5% of what was going on on the stage. And yet everyone wanted to be in those seats because everyone could see you there. And everyone would be impressed and would honor you for being in the box seat. And that's what's happening in our text. They they bring this guy in in fine clothing and they put him in a place where he will be honored, where people will be wowed and amazed that he is here among us. And the shabby guy gets the exact opposite treatment. We're told in verse 3 that he's given two options. He can go stand over there, presumably out of sight and downwind from everyone else, or he can sit down at my feet. And because we're not in the first century, we missed the insult there. Uh, to, to sit at someone's feet meant that you were less than them. It was like saying to the person, you're good enough to be my footstool. It, it was a statement of disdain and, and, and just loathing for that person. It, it's kind of like in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows where Ron... Hermione and Harry sneak into the Ministry of Magic and there's that new statue where there's a wizard and a witch sitting on a throne and the inscription, Magic is Might. What's at the bottom of the statue? There are hundreds of carved humans being crushed by and propping up the wizarding world. The humans, the muggles in that statue, are at the feet of the wizards. They are despised and looked down upon with disdain. And this is the problem, which James makes explicit in verse 4, that that the, uh, the churchgoers have made distinction. They were judging who was important and accepted in their midst, and who was not. Well, that should be easy enough to fix, you might be thinking. We'll just not do that, and the problem will go away. But that's like pulling a dandelion and thinking that you've solved the problem. There's something beneath the service that's causing this to keep coming up. And I actually think we look in the wrong place quite frequently. Thankfully, James uh, points to the cause of this problem in verse 1. He says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This word, partiality, is the word that James makes up. See, the Jews had this phrase, by the face. And there was no Greek equivalent for it, and so he makes up this word, partiality. And the idea is that if you are partial towards something, you are judging it based on face value, uh, based on gut reactions and first impressions. And let's be honest, we all do that. Why else would advertising exist? It's because whenever we see sleek cars or the newest iPhone or whatever, we will show partiality towards it based on how it looks. But here's what we often fail to notice. In these instances where we are showing partiality, beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Someone has determined what's valuable. Someone has determined that a sports car is more valuable than a minivan. Someone has determined that an iPhone has a greater face value than an LG phone. And in our text, someone has determined that a person with fine clothes and a gold ring have a greater face value than a person in shabby clothing. Do you see what I'm I'm getting at? The root cause of partiality is that we have adopted the wrong value system. We have accepted the world's terms and conditions, which James says are incompatible if we are holding to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is actually the the root problem that James keeps pulling at throughout his entire letter, that, that there is an incompatibility of value systems something that, that most nations understand quite well. If you know anyone who's become a, a citizen of the United States, you know that it's a rather lengthy process to do that and it, it culminates with, a, 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 with an oath that they have to say, where they denounce a, 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 and um, uh, revoke all loyalties to any other nations and swear allegiance to the United States of America. And that's really, really important to the United States because at some point in their life, the interests and values of the United States are going to be opposed to the other nations. And you can only swear allegiance to one. The problem of James's audience is that they're trying to have dual citizenship. They are trying to mix and match value systems to fit their needs. They love that they are saved by grace and that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. But they also want to be rich and comfortable and enjoy all that this life has to offer. And so they are trying to live out both value systems. And this is what's causing the problem. It's not a lack of knowledge and not that they don't know better, rather, it's a lack of allegiance to Jesus. It's, it's failure to adopt his kingdom values. And once again, we could say, well, okay, fine, I will adopt Jesus' values. Done. But values don't work like that. Values flow out of our heart. And so something else has to happen. Something has to change the tides of our hearts in order to, to abandon this uh, tendency to partiality. Thankfully, James spells out that solution for us at the end of verse 1, where he says that Jesus is the Lord of glory. I'm pretty sure when I read the text er earlier, your mind just kind of glossed over that clause, in part because of that word glory. We don't know what to do with it. We sing about it all the time, but if pressed to define it, it's quite difficult. And if you look it up in the dictionary, it's not much help, because it'll say things like glory is majesty. It's splendor. It's beauty which is all true, and all very unhelpful. And the struggle really is because we have divorced glory from its subject. When we glory in something, we are saying that this thing is the most splendid, beautiful, majestic thing to me in the world. And if Gollum has taught us anything, it's that when we deem something to be the most precious thing, it affects everything. And the reality is we all have something that we glory in. So like, let's say that it's popularity. Right? There's nothing more splendid or wonderful than popularity to someone, being accepted and adored by their peers. If that's the thing you glory in, then you will spend most if not all of your time worrying about what other people think about you and conforming yourself to get the most likes, which means that you would never associate with someone that the world deems as being in shabby clothing. Do you you see how what the heart glories in affects our actions? And so the solution has to be that our heart glories in something else, which is why James says that Jesus has to be the Lord of glory. He has to be the supremely wonderful, majestic one to us. And here's why he should be. The Bible tells us something very interesting about ourselves. In, in Isaiah 64, 6, we're told that all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. In other words, we are the ones in shabby clothing. We are the ones who are poor and deserve to be despised and rejected. But listen to how Isaiah describes what Jesus did for us. I'm looking at the end of Isaiah 52, going into chapter 53. He says, But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our back on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Do you see why Jesus is the Lord of glory? Because he, being rich, became poor, despised, broken, so that we who were poor might become rich. See, when we grasp our new position in Jesus, it it affects what our heart glories in, which in turn affects our values and affects our actions. And so the line in the sand for us is this. I want to challenge us to be faithful to Jesus and his value system. And that really has two parts to it. One is simply taking the time to glory in what Jesus has done for you. To, to, To reflect on the fact that you and I are the shabby clothing people. And what Jesus did for us. But then we have to put that into effect. And every time we get together, we have an excellent opportunity to do that. To look across the aisle, across the gym, to the person on the left and right of small group time. And choose to value someone that the world has judged by face value. And the reason we do that is because Jesus judges us not by our face value, but by his